Good evening, everybody. So glad you're here. Thanks again to our kitchen crew and staff doing a great job week after week. Yeah, thank you and uh, appreciate your hard work. Good stuff. Um, we're going to begin with a word of prayer as we normally do. And, uh, and guys, this is uh, going by so quickly tonight. We're going to try to cover three letters. So I've been drinking coffee all afternoon. We're going to try to go 19, 20, and 21. Letters 19, 20, and 21. That will leave 22 and 23 for next week. And after next Wednesday, it's spring break. And then it's it's really the, 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 the last lap there in April. So, guys, you have done a great job. I am so grateful. Everybody staying with it. Uh, at one point, you know, I mean, Jesus said, those who persevere to the end will be saved. <laughs> We're probably talking about something else, but uh, I'm excited. Everybody hanging in there. Um, so, three letters tonight. We'll... 22 and 23 next Wednesday, good Lord willing, and then we won't meet spring break, and then it'll just be April, and uh, we'll have uh, uh, four more there. So, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of today. We give you thanks for this group that's gathered. Lord, we thank you for this dear church. We thank you, Lord, for all the good things you're doing, the things that we can see and the things we can't see. Just now, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would open our minds, expand our understanding and our knowledge, uh, not to be puffed up, but rather to be built up in you. We want more knowledge uh, so that we can love you more. We thank you, Lord, for your promised presence where two or three are gathered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we got our work cut out for us tonight, so let's begin. Letter 19. We begin letter 19. Screwtape has become concerned about previous letters. In a previous letter, you may remember, he said things like, uh, uh, love is impossible, and yet God is love. In his very nature, he is love. Uh, that obviously is heresy in the devil's world. So, oopsie. So now he has in print saying something that he never should have said. So he tries to <laughs> backtrack from that. No big deal. Didn't mean it, right? Make sure you don't show anybody. That's where he begins the letter, my dear Wormwood. I have been thinking very hard about the question in your last letter. If, as I have clearly shown, all selves are by their very nature in competition, and therefore the enemy's idea of love is a contradiction in terms, what becomes of my reiterated warning that he really loves the human vermin and really desires their freedom and continued existence? I hope, my dear boy, you have not shown my letters to anyone. <laughs> and not that it matters, of course. Anyone would see that the appearance of heresy into which I have fallen is purely accidental. By the way, I hope you understand, too, that some apparently uncomplimentary references to slug gob were purely jocular, right? I, I was just joking, you see. I really have the highest respect for him. By the way, there's so much irony and satire baked into here. You know the Shakespeare line, thou protestest too much. When you say, 
I really have the highest respect for him. What's one thing we know? <laughs> you do not have the highest respect for him. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, how the word actually ruins all compliments. Did you know that? I made it for you. What'd you think? It was actually edible. Right? You see how the actually. Anyway. Uh, that was actually a listenable sermon. Hey, what's the actually there? Okay. I really have the highest respect for him. And of course, some things I said about not shielding you from the authorities were not seriously meant. You can trust me to look after your interests, but do keep everything under lock and key. The truth is, I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. Uh, he is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. Now look, he's about to begin a long paragraph. He's about to talk about how he cannot get his head around love. And if you think about it, that is the great divorce between heaven and hell. Hell cannot understand God's concept of love. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. Now, what begins next? He is about to give his version. This is hell's propaganda on how Satan was cast out of heaven. What he's about to tell you is, is the propaganda that he's spinning. It is, as the kids today say, all cap. We're about to experience straight cap. This is uh, 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 propaganda. This is lies. But from his perspective, he's saying, he, all this talk about love, it's a disguise. There's something up his sleeve, right? The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love, he's explaining his own heresy. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. That means unsolvable. So he's saying, I just don't get it. What is it? If it's not love, why would he? Because love, he says, is utterly impossible. All beings are in competition. So it's got to be something else. What is it? Well, I do not see, everybody see where I am? I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy. That's one way to put it. When the creation of man was first mooted, in other words, when it was first introduced, and when, even at that stage, the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. In other words, he's saying when the whole idea of uh, creating the humans, um, and Lewis here is tapping into John Milton, many other uh, theologians, who would say that even before God created humanity, because God knows everything, he could see that they would fall and then need to be redeemed. So before he even makes, to even make humanity as an act of grace, but then to make humanity you know is going to break your heart and require your own only begotten son's death on a cross and to do it anyway. So he foresees this whole thing about the cross. Satan barges in, demands answers. Our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock and bull story about disinterested love, which he's been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. He implored the enemy, lay his cards on the table, and he gave him every opportunity. He admitted he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. And then the enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. 
It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview, our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself an infinite distance from the presence with a suddenness that has you know, given rise to the ridiculous enemy story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. <laughs> in other words, uh, you, you got it? The propaganda going around heaven is that, that Satan just could not tolerate or understand why God would actually love these humans, and he couldn't understand love. So when he goes and demands an answer, I don't understand love, God's response here is, I wish you did. And he's so angry, he spreads the propaganda like, uh, like imagine the, uh, you know, uh, some guy uh, starts a, a fight in the club and the bouncer throws him out on his ear and he, yeah, well, I was leaving anyway, you know. Like, yeah, buddy, that's your story. The fact is, you were kicked out. So here's Satan saying, well, our father ran out in such a rush and at such a distance, it appears that he was thrown out, but he actually was running, you know. Again, it's propaganda. Since then, we've begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if we ever came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he's really up to. Hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried. Still, we can't find out. Yet, we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this, pursued and accelerated to the very end of time, cannot, surely, fail to succeed. <laughs> and there it is. By adding the surely, it's like you protest too much. I think he knows he's doomed. But the idea is they're going to keep trying to figure out what is God really up to? What is his motive? Now, that is a satanic approach. That is also, I have to believe, uh, where many people, before they come to faith in God, they have a great skepticism. What is God really up to? You say, well, no, he just loves you. Yeah, but what's his angle? Why would somebody say that? Because everybody in their life that was supposed to care for them and love them had an angle. You know, because they look at other people and... Uh, especially if they've been a victim of trauma or abuse. They say, yeah, but I've been hurt by that before. I've, I've, I've been hurt by those who were supposed to love me before. And that's why in 1 John chapter 1, when John says, listen, here's the message we've heard from Jesus and now declare to you. In 1 John 1, 5, he says, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness, none at all. And in that simple sentence, what he's saying is something that you cannot say of any human being. Your, your mama may be smart, your dad may be strong and kind, but only God is light. He's the only one who's truly perfect. Because we've never seen that in a human being, we think maybe God is like that. Even the person you came with tonight, you may be married to somebody, you may be here with your best friend, you may be here with your spouse, but only God is light. No matter how good a human relationship, there's always going to be that possibility of disappointment. In fact, turn to that person you love so much, look them right in the eyes right now and say, there's darkness inside of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That's, yeah, it's creepy and weird. Yeah. I don't know which is weirder, the fact like, that some of you were so willing to do it, or like the ease with which you're like, like I've been telling you all afternoon, okay? Listen to this guy. Uh, but, we're, but we know that instinctively, right? But that's not true when it comes to God. In fact, 
it, it is a bold move for the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 5 to say, I'm going to take the entire ministry of everything Jesus taught us about God and put it in a bumper sticker. And yet that's exactly what he does. And of all the ways he sums it up, he says, God is light. But when you think about it, that's the perfect way to sum it up. Because if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's the original lie. You can't really trust him, can you? Adam, Eve, did God really say? That's his tongue. Did God really say? Huh? You just, I mean, it seems to me God's holding out on you. He looks all good. He looks beneficent. He looks like you could trust him. But I don't know. I think there's a hint of darkness. And Jesus, of course, came. And he proved, not just with his lips, but with his life. When he hung there and died on the cross, if you ever wonder what God thinks of you, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. There's no shadow of turning. There's no ha-ha gotcha. There's no ulterior motive. And later, that's why the same book, 1 John, also says, God is love. For the same reason. To me, those two things are saying the exact same thing. Perfectly pure. Perfectly full of love. Has his glory and your good wrapped up in the same thing, always. Romans 8, 28, for example. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. Now, we got to move on. What about being in love? You complain that my last letter, remember, uh, our patient is single, and he's, uh, 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 apparently he's dating, and, and he, he wants to be married. So you complain that my last letter does not make it clear whether I regard being in love as a desirable state for a human or not. But really, Wormwood, that's the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love, or patriotism, or celibacy, or candles, or altars, or the color of the carpet, or teetotalism, or education, or good or bad. Can you see there's no answer? Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. That is a key. That is a key theme we've seen over and over in Screwtape, isn't it? Satan always seems to want to use the issue for his purposes. Not for God's purposes, for Satan's purposes, right? So his issue is not, we get hung up on which political party should we be a part of and, 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 and which, what should we be a, a part of the, what does he say, the candles or the, you know, the high church or the low church? Should we be, oh, should we be in love or should we not be in love or which form of education? Satan wants to take all that. All he cares about is what's going to move you further from the enemy and what's going to move you closer to the demonic. That we see that over and over again. So when it comes to the issue of love, it'd be quite a good thing to make the patient decide that love is good or bad. Let him decide that. If he's an arrogant man with a contempt for the body, really based on delicacy, but mistaken by him for purity, that's a complicated uh, beginning to a sentence. I think what he means by delicacy, I think what he means here is hypersensitivity. Delicacy just means hypersensitivity. He just doesn't like physical bodies, but he pats himself on the back and excuses that. He, he says he's being like pure and chaste, so he's really just proud. He takes pleasure in flouting what most of his fellows approve. By all means, let him decide against love. Instill into him an overweening asceticism. That means like um, uh, uh, a super strict legalistic self-discipline. Uh, and then when you've separated his sexuality from all that might humanize it, weigh in on him with 
with, with it in some more, much more brutal and cynical form. That's how you deal with it if he's that kind of guy. If, on the other hand, he's an emotional, gullible man, you know, this is the guy that was always in and out of love, sort of the hopeless romantic. Feed him on minor poets and fifth-rate Taylor Swift songs. Sorry, novelists, novelists. Fifth-rate novelists of the old school. Until you've made him believe that love is both irresistible and somehow intrinsically meritorious. In other words, just the act of being in love is so glorious and wonderful and we should all do it. This belief is not much help, I grant you, in producing casual unchastity, but it is incomparable recipe for prolonged, quote-unquote, noble, romantic, tragic adulteries, ending, if all goes well, in murders and suicides. In other words, make this person so wrapped up in the hopeless romantic notion that he will pursue this person at all costs, even if it's adulterous, the only true law is to be in love in this man's mind. Failing that, it can be used to steer the patient into a, quote, useful marriage. Can you imagine what, what, what on earth would Satan call a useful marriage? For marriage, though the enemy's invention has its uses. Guys, here's a moment not to amen, okay? Don't be foolish here. Be very careful, right? Wives, same thing. There must be several young women in your patient's neighborhood who would render the Christian life intensely difficult to him if only you could persuade him to marry one of them. Nervous silence. Good. Please. <laughs> In other words, he's saying, hey, he's a single dude. We're trying to draw him away from the enemy. So what's one thing? Get him to marry a girl that's not a Christian. There's a reason the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked. Why? Because at some point, somebody's going to give. At some point, Somebody, the Christian's going to have to realize, well, my marriage is important. I always thought this faith part of me was really important, but I guess ultimately it's not. Or the, or the person who doesn't have faith is saying, hey, you knew when you were getting married that I didn't have any faith. So I, I'm sorry, you can keep being frustrated with me, but I'm not going to share your faith. What fellowship, Paul says, does light have with darkness? Uh, not so much here in Alabama, uh, maybe occasionally, but uh, very often in New York, couples would sit down and uh, uh well, preacher, we want you to marry. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a strong Christian and this person is of another faith or Jewish or they're Muslim or whatever. And uh, I would always tell them, I wish you well. There are a million rent preachers that will do a great job for you. They'll, go to, they'll take you to Central Park. You're like, That's not a problem to find a preacher. But I won't do it. And I won't do it. And I want you to know why. It's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't think you can have a very happy, you know, that, that's great. I, I really do. I wish you well. But I won't perform your wedding. And here's why. Can you imagine bringing a licensed contractor to your job site and saying, hey, I'm, I want you to build my house. There's only one thing. You can't use a foundation. The contractor would say, I wish you well. I'm sure you can find somebody who will do that job for you. But I'm not putting my name on it because as a professional, like, th like this is what I believe. I, I just can't. It's not that I don't love your home or love your plan or whatever. I simply can't do it. I can't officiate a marriage where the wedding is not between two believers. I just can't. It won't work. This is what he's saying here. Satan's saying, well, you know, screw tape saying, well, let's see if we can work that angle. Send me a report on this when you next write. In the meantime, get it quite clear in your own mind that this state of falling in love is not in itself necessarily favorable to us or to the other side. It's simply an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit. Like most of the other things which humans are excited about, such as health and sickness and age and youth and war and peace, it is, from the point of view of the spiritual life, mainly 
raw material. Ooh, it's so good. Let me ask you this way. To Satan, so much that we stress about, to him it's just raw material. Let me ask you a question. Let's see if you get the point. Does Satan want you rich or poor? He doesn't care. If he can get you rich and arrogant and forget your need for God, he's one. If, you can, if he can get you poor and always envious of others and even tempted to steal, he's happy. Does Satan want you healthy or sick? You think, it's like, well, you know, uh, somebody told me the other day, Satan is very corporate. He has a, a purpose statement. You know how corporations have purpose statements and mission statements? His purpose statement, to kill, steal, and destroy. Yeah, and to take market share, right? Steal, kill, and destroy. So there's a sense in which, yeah, I guess, but here's the thing. If health, the answer is he doesn't care. That's right. If health keeps you in a state of arrogance and illness keeps you in a state of, of self-pity, it just, it's just raw material. You get the point. At war or no war. Married or single. He doesn't really care. That's just the raw material he has to work from. That would be very discouraging. To know that so many things we care about are in fact just his raw material to get me closer or further from God. And so I thought I'd read you this to encourage you. There's someone else who wants to use the circumstances of your life as raw material. This is from A Diary of Private Prayer by John Bailey. Each day has a morning and evening prayer. Diary of Private Prayer, if you're interested. Old book, it's been redone by Susanna Wright, I think. But John I'm not spelling that right, but if you Amazon, and that'll get you close enough. Here's part of his prayer. Teach me, O God, to use all the circumstances of my life today to nurture the fruits of the Spirit rather than the fruits of sin. Let me use disappointment as material for patience. Let me use success as material for thankfulness. Let me use anxiety. Who would have thought? Use this stuff. Let me use anxiety as material for perseverance. I mean, can you imagine telling your kid who's struggling with anxiety? Looks like you got some perseverance material being formed. But that's what it, that, what a powerful way to look at it. God, let me use danger as material for courage. How about this one? Let me use criticism as material for learning. Let me use praise as material for humility. Let me use pleasures as material for self-control. Let me use pain as material for endurance. <laughs> that sounds like something a coach would say right there. Pain is just endurance material. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Exactly. So the enemy wants to use disappointment, success, anxiety, danger, criticism, praise, pleasures, and pain in a negative way. But let's not forget, that's also raw material for the Holy Spirit. See, raw material can be used by God too. All right. Uh, chapter, uh, letter 20. <clears throat> letter 20 deals with physical attraction, sexual taste. There's a section in here that I just, I, 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 you'll know it when we get there. I just can't believe he wrote that in 1941. It's just, it's so prescient. All right, here we go. Let's check. Okay. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what's common to man. In other words, you're not alone. And uh, primarily here in, in, in this chapter, thinking about lust, but it could be anything. God is faithful, the Bible says, and he'll do what? 
He'll always provide a way of escape so that you may stand up under it. In other words, temptation's not going to last forever. Wormwood's about to discover that. My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that the enemy has, for the time being, put a forcible end to your direct attacks on the patient's chastity. You might have known, he all, you ought to have known, he always does in the end, and you ought to stop before you reach that stage. For as things are, your man has now discovered the dangerous truth that these attacks don't last forever. For everybody going through temptation tonight, for everybody watching this online who's battling fear, depression, anxiety, darkness, look at what I wrote down. These attacks don't last forever. They don't. Tomorrow's a new day. Consequently, and, and, and Wormwood had to learn that the hard way. We don't get any details on what it looks like that God put a direct attack, uh, excuse me, that God put a direct end to Wormwood's attacks. We're just told he did, and it's hope for all of us. So consequently, you can't use again what is, after all, our best weapon, the belief of ignorant humans that there's no hope of getting rid of us except by yielding. Everybody hear that? One of Satan's great tactics is to get you to believe the only way temptation's going to end is if you give in. Well, now we know, no, that's not true. There's a way of escape. I can last. I suppose you've tried persuading him that chastity's unhealthy. That's a pretty lame last-ditch effort, but it's what he's going with. I was in a Sunday school class and the teacher made an illustration. It was one of those illustrations sometimes preachers have where the either weirdness or over, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but like the illustration itself took over the main point of what he was saying. I still, to this day, remember the main point, but I remember the illustration more because it was so disturbing. Apparently there was a scientific experiment and this little mouse or something was in a, a little a pool of water. And uh, uh, how long would it stay afloat before it drowned and died? And the answer was like five minutes. But if the researcher came and it would swim and swim and swim, and the researcher at the last minute would come and lift it up out of the water and then put it back in, knowing that there was hope, it swam for like 19 days. Something incredible. Now, that's an amazing point, but everybody in the class was like, what monster is drowning mice? Like, I know that's not the point, but that's a really deeply disturbing. So I don't know if the story's true, but I do know this. Hope floats. And hope... <laughs> I'll be here all week. He's right! If you have, listen, if you have a Christian who believes this, I don't have to defeat temptation. I just gotta last. I, I gotta make it one day at a time. Right? I... I these attacks don't last forever. There is hope. There will be a rescue. The rescue's coming. You're going to fight a lot different in your uh, uh, struggle against sin than if you think, well, there's no hope. The only, way to, the only way to win is to give in. No. So listen to that. Take courage from that. Take hope. I haven't yet got a report from you on young women in the neighborhood. I should like it at once. For if we can't use his sexuality to make him unchaste, we must try to use it for the promotion of a desirable marriage. Remember what we talked about? A screw tape would want you to marry somebody who would not be a good match for you in marriage. In the meantime, I'd like to give you some hint about the type of woman, I mean the physical type, which he should be encouraged to fall in love with if, quote, falling in love is the best we can manage. Here we go. In a rough and ready way, of course, this question is decided for us by spirits far deeper down in the lowerarchy than you and I. Pause and consider that. It is the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what may be called sexual taste 
They do this by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. Ponder that for a second. What's popular in fashion may not come from where we think. Influencers, dressers, uh, what does it say, dressmakers, celebrities, artists. What if there's a demonic force at work deep in the lowerarchy that determines for every age what that fashion is going to be? The aim is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. He wants to do a misdirect. Thus, we have now for many centuries triumphed over nature to the extent of making certain secondary characteristics of the male, such as the beard, disagreeable to nearly all the females. And there's more in that than you might suppose. Now, Brother Jeff, this was written in 1941, so the beard is back, man. You're good. Uh, don't... Uh, that one always cracks me up. Obviously, this was written in a day and age. He's just making a point that it's some ancillary characteristic that has nothing to do with whether or not this man would make a good husband. But, you know, it just maybe isn't fashionable at the right, you know, at this particular moment. So somebody will dismiss an entire portion of the, of the pool of potential spouses simply for something like, like a beard. Uh, now, he's going to spend the rest of the time talking about this same thing on the female side which seems one-sided, but I would remind you it's one-sided because the patient he's trying to tempt is a male. And so presumably it would be the other way around. So you can still, I hope, apply all that stuff. As regards to the male taste, we have varied a good deal. At one time, we have directed it to the statuesque and aristocratic type of beauty, mixing men's vanity with their desires and encouraging the race to breed chiefly from the most arrogant and prodigal women. Prodigal means uh, wasteful. At another period of history, we've selected an exaggeratedly feminine type, faint and languishing, so that folly and cowardice and all the general falseness and littleness of mind which go with them shall be a premium. At present, we're on the opposite tack. The age of jazz has, succeed, has succeeded the age of the waltz, and we now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. Since this is a kind of beauty even more transitory than most, we thus aggravate the female's chronic horror of growing old with many excellent results, and render her less willing and less able to bear children. And that's not all. We have engineered a great increase in the license which society allows to the representation of the apparent nude, not the real nude, in art and its exhibition on the stage or the bathing beach. In other words, Satan is behind all this. Well, you know, let's show a little more skin everywhere. It's all a fake, of course. The figures in the popular art are falsely drawn. The real women in bathing suits or tights are actually pinched in and propped up to make them appear firmer and more slender and more boyish than nature allows a full-grown woman to be. He wrote that in 1941. How did he know about Photoshop? How did he know about Instagram filters? I want to know. You tell me, is that not... Is that not absolute, Jackie and I, you know, she was telling me, she, she, I remember reading that, right? We're, we're talking like that. That's unbelievable. That he, so watch this. Yet at the same time, the modern world is taught to believe that it's being frank and healthy and, you know, getting back to nature. Listen to the sentence. As a result, we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist, making the role of the eye in sexuality more and more important, and at the same time, making its demands more and more impossible. What follows you can easily forecast. 
Do you know what follows? 2023, that's what follows. Do you understand? Make the, make the desires of men more and more, make the ideal womanly figure or shape or whatever, make it more and more impossible to achieve. Make it absolutely more and more impossible and make the desire for that grow greater and greater. Uh, I'm telling you, he, he was way ahead of his time because that's what we have here. Uh, I um, uh, imagine for anybody growing up with screens, anybody, I, you know, oh, I, I just, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to rant on this. I certainly don't want to seem like grumpy old boomer, you know, kids get off my lawn. But I think like, like when, you know, obviously, you know, my grandparents, right. I look at them and I'm like, what were you thinking? Like you literally told my dad to smoke cigarettes. Like here, clears the lungs. Use Marlboro like a good 13 year old. I'm like, what were you doing? Right? Have you seen those old ads where it's like four out of five doctors choose camel, you know? And what they'll tell you is we didn't know. Like we didn't know to which I say like that you didn't like that's fair. I have a feeling. My grandkids, and if you ever watch this, I'm so sorry. They're going to be like, you gave your 14-year-old a phone? What were you, just give him a pack of cigs with it next time. Like, what were you, and I'm going to have to say to them, we didn't know. So research was starting to come out, but we ignored it. Like, we didn't know. We ruined your childhood with screens. We're sorry. Right? Uh, on a serious note, I do think there, that, that growing up right now as an adolescent, uh, I heard one writer uh, called it, uh, in terms of all this, like the desirability, uh, a woman, be, uh, th this image becomes more and more desired and yet more and more impossible for an actual human to look like that. Uh, and he talked about the, the uh, uh, epidemic of pornography. He called it the pornification of America's youth. And I thought, what a word, pornification. Youth had become pornified in their view of sexuality. Doesn't that wake you up? I mean, doesn't that touch your heart? This almost seems quaint by comparison, but I do remember um, many, many years ago, uh, uh, this is a sermon illustration people were using, I thought it was so uh, apt. Tyra Banks was a, a supermodel and she was being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey on the Oprah Winfrey show. And Oprah was celebrating that Tyra Banks was on the cover of some fashion magazine. And there's this really candid moment where this supermodel, Tyra Banks, looks at Oprah and laughs, and she points to the cover and she goes, I don't know whose legs those are, but they're not mine. <laughs> and it's like, here's a supermodel freely admitting, like, that, that's not my body. So what we've done is we've said, well, here's the ideal. Oh, and by the way, it's utterly made up. It's utterly unreal. Well, that's the general strategy of the moment. But inside the framework, you will still find it possible to encourage your patient's desire in one of two directions. You will find, if you look carefully into any human, human's heart, he's haunted by at least two imaginary women, a terrestrial and infernal Venus. This is, pretty, uh, this is a pretty thick paragraph. I think it, it would help if you think of the infernal Venus. Think of the terrestrial Venus as a woman he's in love with, but she still bears the image of God in his mind, um, earthly. And then the infernal Venus, infernal meaning, you know, hellish, uh, as someone he objectifies, right? So uh, this sort of sex object in his mind. Think of it that way. His desire differs qualitatively according to its object. There is one type for which his desire is such as to be naturally amenable to the enemy, readily mixed with charity, readily obedient to marry, marriage, colored all through with that golden light of reverence and naturalness, which we detest. All right, so what's he saying here? He's saying when it comes to 
physical attraction, sexual taste, it, it's not wrong to be attracted to your mate. You, you should be. I do always laugh when I do premarital counseling. I used to ask the guys like, hey, I would ask both parties. I would say, uh, you fir what first drew you to this person? And it's so funny because the answer is obviously she was beautiful, but they never want to say that because they don't think it's a spiritual answer. So they'll be like, yeah, like her heart for the Lord. <laughs> really? That's what you saw across the room at the Lambda Chi house. Really? We're going with that. Oh, okay, buddy. Like, I know I'm the preacher, but like, really? And eventually they'll be like, well, I also think she's pretty. I'm like, yeah. And I always joke. I say, dude, that's okay. Like, that's to be encouraged. That's a good thing. That's the terrestrial Venus. That's fine. But he says there's another type. This is where in any time you lust, what you've done is you've made a human, created the image of God, into an object. There's another time in which he desires brutally and desires to desire brutally, a type best used to draw him away from marriage altogether, but which, even within marriage, he would tend to treat as a slave, an idol, or an accomplice. His love for the first, uh, the terrestrial, might involve what the enemy calls evil, but only accidentally. The man would wish she wasn't someone else's wife, be sorry he couldn't love her lawfully, but in a second, the felt evil is what he wants. It's that tang, that word means pungent, distinctive, in the flavor which he is after. In the face, it is the visible animality or sulkiness or craft or cruelty which he likes. And in the body, something quite different from what he ordinarily calls beauty, something he may even in a sane hour describe as ugliness, but which by our, our, by our art can be made to play on the raw nerve of his private obsession. The real use of the infernal Venus is no doubt as prostitute or mistress, but if your man is a Christian and if he's been well-trained in nonsense about irresistible and all excusing love, he can often be induced to marry her. And that is very well worth bringing about. You'll still, you, you will have failed as regards fornication and solitary vice, but there are other more indirect methods of using a man's sexuality to his undoing. And by the way, they're not only efficient, but delightful. The unhappiness produced is of a very lasting and exquisite kind. Again, a difficult paragraph, but if you think of the infernal Venus as that objectified woman, the paragraph makes more sense. The terrestrial Venus is still viewed as a human. So you make sin in pursuing her, but at least you got the right idea. Whereas the infernal Venus you're viewing as an object, and thus the less she reflects God, the better, prostitute or mistress or whatever you've objectified, but why not get him to marry this person he objectified and use her as an object or object of worship or accomplice uh, in sin, is what he's saying. We're going to try to do three letters. We're, we're going we're to try to do 21. Here we go. We're gonna, and I might even have time for questions. Here we go. All right. Letter 21 deals with Entitlement. Entitlement. Letter 21 is entitlement. Amazingly, the, the sexual temptation piece can still be a part of this. I'll show you how. My dear Wormwood, yes, a period of sexual temptation is an excellent time for working in a subordinate attack on the patient's peevishness. Now, that's just grumpiness, being cross, irritated. It may even be the main attack as long as he thinks it's the subordinate one. But here, as in everything else, the way must be prepared for your moral assault by darkening his intellect. Just pause right there. Over and over, what's the same old pattern with screw tape? I think it was Augustine, right? First, sin blinds you, then it binds you. In other words, before sin puts you in its bondage, it first blinds you. The Bible always talks about the deceit of sin, the deceptiveness. It's sneaky. So he blinds you. So he's saying, darken his intellect, which is why... Opening up a very difficult book like C.S. Lewis and using the old gray matter is a great defense against sin 
because it, it opens, it enlightens our intellect. Men are, here it is, big sentence, I'm going to write it on the board. Men are not angered by misfortune. I think I'm remembering that. Yep. Men are not angered by misfortune. Right? They don't get mad when stuff doesn't go their way. And that's true. Uh, by the way, the, the, sorry, hu humans. It's not talking about the patient as a man. It's just talking about humans. You think, well, no, I know people that get real bent out of shape. Ah, men are not angered by misfortune, comma, but by misfortune construed, misfortune construed, or per, what is it, perceived? Conceived. I before E except after C. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Because you know that, that rule is like I before E except after C in 50,000 other words. But by misfortune conceived as injury. Very important point. That's huge. That is humongous. In other words, you don't get mad when stuff goes wrong. You get mad when stuff goes wrong that you had a right to something better. In your mind. I'll give you a simple example. In, where we lived in New York, our uh, train station. If you want to go, if you ever go to New York, don't call it the subway. Call it the train. I don't know why. That just makes it sound cool. Nobody calls it the subway. Subway's the place that has uh, imitation sandwiches. Those are hoagies. And, and, and the point is, uh, uh, the train stop where we lived was the Briarwood Van Wick Station. And the train that served that best was the F train. The F train would go all the way to Manhattan downtown, all the way out to Brooklyn, and eventually end at Coney Island. It would turn around, it would come all the way back to Jamaica, Queens. The F train was very, very busy. Every now and then, you would get a seat on the subway train. More often than not, you would do what's called subway surfing, right? Which is you're trying to hang on, right? But there's all these people, you're crammed in there like sardines. Every now and then, you get a, you get a seat. Now, if you get on the F train and there's no seats available, the, the, you know, there's a few seats around, but there's no available, you stand. And here's the thing, you're not angry. I mean, you may be angry, that's just because it's New York and it's rainy and you're tired, okay. But you're not angry by that. You don't have a seat, you're not angry. Watch, follow me. Let's say you get on and oh, your lucky day, it's pretty crowded, but there's a seat, huh, what luck. You sit down, okay, you're riding along the F train, riding along, and then suddenly, um, you hit a real hard stop and there's, you know, a person there who's about to lunge forward. So you, because you're a good person, you jump up quick and you help them because they're about to fall, right? And, oh, thank you. Oh, no problem. And you go back to your seat and somebody snuck in your seat while you were helping that person. <laughs> now you're mad. I don't understand. What's the difference? You didn't have a seat. You weren't mad. In the second illustration, you don't have a seat and you're furious. The difference is, in the first illustration, it was never your seat. In the second illustration, I was entitled to that seat. That was my seat. Once it became my seat, I'm mad when it's gone. When it was never my seat, I'm not mad. It's no misfortune. It's misfortune that's perceived as injury. Does everyone understand that from my simple train illustration? Okay. The sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. Don't you know the rules of etiquette? If I had that seat and I get up to merely help a poor person who's falling, it's still my seat. I have a legitimate claim and it's been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured and as a result, ill-tempered. 
Get people to be entitled by everything and they'll constantly be in a state of offense. They're constantly, constantly offended. The best people in the world to be around, by the way, are people who are unoffendable. Don't find those people, hang out with them. They're the best. I mean, you don't always hang out because you know you reach out to others. But those are the people, right? They're unoffendable. Why? Because they don't feel entitled to everything. They look at life like, hey, I'm a forgiven sinner. Whatever anybody's done to me, I've done worse to God. So you're not going to offend me. Oh, though, what a precious thing. But the opposite is what Screwtape wants. Now, you will have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find, for example, a track of time which he reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It's the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a tete-a-tete with just a friend that throw him out of gear. In other words, he's not mad about spending time with somebody if it had been already planned or whatever. But when he thought of having his own free time and it's interrupted, now he's all mad. Now, he's not yet so uncharitable or slothful. These small demands on his courtesy are in themselves too much for it. No, they anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. Woo! Once you're entitled to your own 24 hours, then it's like anybody who wants to impose on the time. That's your time and it's being taken. You see the difference? You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, quote, my time is my own. Ha! Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax that portion of this property which he has to make over to his employers and as a generous donation that further portion which he allows to religious duties. You see what he's saying? I own Sunday mornings. God, you're lucky to get an hour. Woo! Who owns what now? I own my time. My employer should be grateful I grace them with my work. Ooh, what do you own? But he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was, in some mysterious sense, his own personal birthright. You have here a delicate task. The assumptions which you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, say on a Wednesday night in March, even if we cannot find a shred of argument in his defense, it's never questioned. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and the moon as his chattels. That word means possessions. He is also, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy. And if the enemy appeared to him in this is such a great if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for even one day, he would not refuse. In fact, he'd be greatly relieved that if that one day involved nothing harder than listening to the conversation of a foolish woman. And he'd be relieved almost to the pitch of disappointment if for one half hour in that day, the enemy said, eh, now you may go amuse yourself. Isn't that something? In other words, if God actually came and said, all right, I demand full service for all 24 hours. He says, that's the state a Christian is in every day. So if God literally came to you and was like, honestly, Take the whole day off. He would be like relieved to the pitch of disappointment that like, but he never thinks like that's literally how every day is. God owns it all. Now, if he thinks about his assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize he's actually in this situation every day. I, sorry, I just said that. 
When I speak of preserving this assumption in his mind, therefore, the last thing I mean you to do is to furnish him with arguments in his defense. There aren't any. Your task is purely negative. Don't let his thoughts come anywhere near it. Wrap a darkness about it, and in the center of that darkness, let his sense of ownership in time lie silent, uninspected, and operative. Well, obviously, there's great irony here because Lewis is talking about it to get us to think about that simple fact. Who owns 24 hours of your day? And the minute you look at it like that, you go, wait a minute. These people aren't interruptions. It's not my time. It's, it's God's day. So I'm not entitled to time. He switches now from time, watch this, to sexual temptation and uh, 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 chastity and purity. Watch. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity. Remember last week? There are two lanes on which you can safely be within biblical bounds of the sexual ethic. Complete purity and singleness. Complete faithfulness in marriage. So here, since the patient is single, he's saying a lot of people resist that chastity comes from men's belief that they, quote, own their bodies. Those vast and perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. In other words, you didn't bring yourself in the world. You're not going to carry yourself out of the world. And yet we walk around like we are the rightful owners of our bodies. It's as if a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in a titular command of some great province under the real rule of wise counselors should come to fancy that he really owns the cities, the forests, the corn, the same way he owns the bricks on the nursery floor. It's a great illustration. Imagine you're some king in a distant land and you own all these different provinces and because of love you have a, a three-year-old and you make that three-year-old the king entitled over, you know, whatever, Richterland, you know. And obviously that little three-year-old is not like the legit CEO runner of that. He has a bunch of advisors. But it, imagine the three-year-old walking around proudly. I own it. I run it. It'd be like, kid, come on. He's saying that's how heaven and hell looks when a human being says, you know, I own. I own my time. I own my body. So I can do what I want with it. First Corinthians chapter 6 talks about this very thing. Talks about sexual purity and and and. And Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality, he says. This is 1 Corinthians 6, I think verse uh, 13, somewhere around 13. He says, all other sins are outside, a man's commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Don't you know, he says, that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives inside you? Here's what he says. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. If you're a Christian, the reason you should be sexually pure and singleness or utterly faithful in marriage, the reason, the fundamental reason Paul lays down in 1 Corinthians 6 is because you are not your own. So if you were your own, you do what you want. But if you belong to God, you got to do it God's way. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Make sense? Ownership matters. I can, uh, I can illustrate. I borrow a pencil. Anybody got a pencil? Who's got a pencil? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Tell me your name. David. Everybody know David? David Rowland. David, I just want to thank you for loaning me your pencil. Here's your pencil back. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You bet. All right. Uh, 
We produce this sense of ownership. Oh, sorry, you guys thought that was pretty savage. Would it help at all uh, to know that just before the Bible study, I was like, hey, David, would you be an audience plant? And uh, I gave you remember, I gave you the pencil, right? It's the church. It's the church. It's the church. It's the church. <laughs> so just before the Bible study, I gave David the pencil, and I was like, hey, David and Terry Rowland, and I knew him, and I knew he'd be a good supporter. I said, hey, here's my pencil. At some point in tonight's study, I'm going to ask for a pencil and make sure you're the one who gives it to me. And now everybody's laughing. You went from thinking I was a fairly evil pastor with a dark heart like the Grinch. And God is light. In him there's no darkness, but there's darkness inside of me. <laughs> but now you're like, oh, Tom. Right? Why? Because ownership matters. If it's his pencil, I can't treat it that way. If it's my pencil, I do whatever I want with it. So when it comes to sexual purity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage, if it's your body, you do what you want. But everybody in here got the point. Ownership matters. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Well, we produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. In other words, it's not just people who are prideful. My time, my body. Whoa! It's also confusion. We teach them not to notice the difference the, the different senses of the possessive pronoun. You know, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, my country, my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. <laughs> Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection, to whom it stands in a special relation, for that's what the enemy will teach me if we're not careful, but the bear I can pull to pieces if I like. And at the other end of the scale, we, might, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense, not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. If the American version of that idiom is, I've, got the, I've cornered the market on God. Now, what's he saying there? There are finely graded differences in that possessive pronoun, my. And can, any, can you imagine, speaking of, you know, my boots, my pencil, right, which I just destroyed here for the sake of a sermon illustration. It, it died in a very noble and worthy cause. <laughs> Treat my pencil very different, or my car, but my wife? That's, that's not the my of ownership. That's the my of love, kind of like this... Uh, uh, the, the teddy bear who stands in a special relation and has all this affection. You see, that's very different. My God means I have a personal relationship, not the my God like my Mazda that I can drive around like I want, my of ownership. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. Ponder that sense. What do you own? What do you have? First Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that is not a gift? In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say, mine, of each thing that exists, especially of each human. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy says, mine, of everything, on the pedantic legalistic ground that, you know, he made it. <laughs> Our father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. In the end, both God and Satan 
want to be able to say mine over everything. That's why Christians pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Let more and more things fall under your, and more and more people fall under your loving kingly rule. Satan wants to be able to say mine of everything as well. Folks, we've done the impossible. We've made it through three letters, and we still have five minutes left for questions. Are there any questions? I know in a big group like this, it may be intimidating to ask a question. Uh, it's uh, uh, not certainly not something you have to. If you want to email me or ever ask me anything you're reading at Screwtape um, or anything, you know, door's always open. I'm, I'd be glad to help any way I can. But if there are any, I'd be glad to take a step. Great question. She asked if you couldn't hear it. Why sign every letter your affectionate uncle? Um, and is it uh, real? Uh, so I, I think it's actually a perfect illustration of what we're talking about with mine. The affection he feels is of uh, the creepiest kind possible. He wants to devour Wormwood. And so there's a, uh, in fact, it's either in the next letter or it's coming up soon. Might be the very next letter. Nope. Well, it's coming up soon where you'll see he, he says uh, something like you're ever affectionate. You're growing. Uh, uh, oh, I wish I could find it. Maybe it's the very end, you know, but you're you're he's growing in this affection. It's the kind of affection that the cat feels for the mouse, so to speak. Yeah. So it's meant to be sort of disturbing. And really the whole book is like that. There's these subtle layers. So I'm glad you noticed that and pointed out. Very good. Are you looking for page? Page 175. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for finding that. Oh, it's probably, is it the very last letter? Yeah. Yeah, you're increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle. Ravenous, ravenous as in I'm about to, to, to uh, uh, gobble up. Yep. Yeah, good catch. Thank you. Great question. Any other questions? Jackie, I said we let him out three minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, the children's ministry will rejoice. That was a great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Jackie, do the honor of uh, closing us out in prayer. Thanks, everybody. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for uh, your word through C.S. Lewis. Thank you for Tom explaining it to us so well. Uh, what a uh, convicting thing, God, that um, I'm not entitled to anything, um, but it's been given to me as a gift by you. So thank you, God, for all that you uh, gift us every single day. Um, and I pray that this week we... Um, don't feel entitled. Instead, I pray, God, that we um, feel like it's a gift and that we should um, share it with everybody, yes. our time and um, and just everything we have. God, I pray that we share it. And we love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.